Hello and welcome to the ACA Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on online meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And our speaker tonight is Robert from Sarasota, Florida. Hey everyone. Hey, thank you, Adam. Thank you everyone for the meeting. Uh, so my name is Robert and uh, I'm an adult child from a dysfunctional family. And uh, it's three years and three months that I've been in, you know, starting to live my life that I was meant to live. Uh, so happy to be here. Um, uh, you know, what's important for me is sharing is really going to be talking from my heart, you know, and, and what the things I went through as a child and, and sort of what gave me the laundry list traits and the other laundry list traits, and then talk about uh, sort of how I've discovered the tools. And, and uh, this meeting is one of those tools to get me through to be a better version of myself for myself, which ultimately brings me into a much better relationship first with me, but then ultimately with everybody I care about. So, um, and I think the one thing I think just starting off is that you know, I didn't have parents who were perfect and, you know, everybody, they tried and I didn't get what I needed as a child. Um, I think thinking back and preparing for this, I, I might have gotten a lot of, uh, at one point when I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher in a school that gave me room to grow and feel alive and, and, and nurtured. That was just in the days and times I was in school. But, you know, then I moved on and, and life continued, right? But I know that these meetings for me, um, they represent um, kind of the loving parent that I didn't have. You know, there's no judgment in these rooms. I can, I can ex exercise my feelings and, and be heard like a child should be as a child develops and, and realizes what their role is in life, feels safe, feels understood, feels supported. And, and this, these rooms taught me that, which ultimately helped me uh, learn how to do that for myself. Because I mean, it's just, I didn't have the parents to model. So these rooms and, and the people that are in these rooms, these meetings are, are a big part of that. So I'll talk a little bit by starting about my story. So um, I'm one of six kids. Uh, my dad was in the military and, uh, you know, and flew in the Air Force. He was gone a week, home a week as, as a pilot in the Canadian Air Force. Um, and you know, he came from a, this, his father was an alcoholic and a very traumatic, abusive father. Uh, he decided he wasn't going to be like his father. So he was militaristic. He wanted us to be perfect, you know, because he felt if we were perfect, somehow something would happen. Uh, but when he was drunk, he was, you know, he drink, didn't drink all the time. But when he was drunk, he was a loving, caring person. But when he was sober, he was mean and you got to do this and behave this way. And then my mother was, uh, she was a codependent. She had grown up in a family where everybody did everything for everyone else and never took care of, her, of themselves. So having that from her grandmother to her mother, to her, you know, she learned that and all of her siblings learned that. So my mother was basically, I taught, I learned from my mother, you know, do everything for everyone and don't take care of yourself, which is codependent behavior, which is just as bad as being, you know, uh, on the other side of, you know, the, the perpetrators, so. And also kind of interesting. So that's a little bit of the backstory, but the story that everybody else saw in the world was the perfect family, right? Behaved perfectly, acted perfectly, were responsible. And this is the drill that my dad had with us from early on. But I have to rewind a little bit and, and just say that contextually, you know, by the time I was uh, roughly 18 months old, 19 months old, 
Um, and in a period of roughly four years, my mother had had five kids. And me and then another one. So five kids in four years is just not humanly possible as a single mother with the father gone on trips to give the level of love and attention that the kids need. And so, you know, it's just, I was an easy baby. I, I laughed, I was happy. So my mom said, we just didn't need to take care of you. We didn't need to pick you up. You were easy, just kept you in the jolly jumper or kept you in your crib and you didn't make any noise. But there's a picture of me when I was 18 months old, 19 months old, I left my crib as a 19 month old and I got out of my crib and I went into my, my three month old sister's bassinet. And there's a picture of me just hugging her and holding her which is like really cute and adorable. My mother said, I had to scold you and tell you you can't do that because she didn't want me to, to hurt my, my three-month-old younger sister. But it, to me, it's a testament that I needed affection. I needed love. And I didn't get that as a 19-year-old, a 19-month-old. So I went and got it you know, for myself, but there's covert abandonment there. And it's not trauma, like the end of the world stuff, but it's just it's the nurturing that I needed that I didn't get. And it wasn't intentional, but... You know, moving forward in the next three, four years, it got worse. There was another boy came along. So we're six kids now. Uh, and then my dad's still driving us to become perfect, you know. And uh, so a couple of things is, you know, um, trying to be perfect, you know, as kids, is you just lose, you're supposed to lose your innocence. You're supposed to sit quietly, not make any noise. You're not supposed to laugh. You're not supposed to play. You're supposed to learn how to eat with the right fork and the right knife. And what's the reward? We, the reward was, oh, you're a good kid because you're doing it. So we were sort of conditioned, and my mom went along with us, we were conditioned to just try to be the best version, be perfect, right? And my dad wanted to impress. Um, and, and, you know, have everybody say, oh, wow, what a perfect family, right, on the outside. But it's the, the secrets were that there was a lot of dysfunction going on. Um, so, you know, I think going to when I was five years old, all this stuff has been going on, um, you know, where we were conditioned to act with praise and again, acknowledgement and praise when we behave a certain way and criticize and discipline if we, so, but, you know, being adults as a five-year-old is not the right way to, to be, right? So there was a lot of, you know, then, you know, it, it becomes very crushing and uh, controlling and it's not fun for kids, right? So parts of me started to really try to understand what, what's going on here. Right, um, but one day I was I was walking back from kindergarten, and this is still for me is pretty important. As I was walking back from kindergarten, and it was just kind of the spiritual thing. Is you know all of a sudden I felt like I'm going to be okay. I felt this love, this light. I don't know what to call it, but I just knew I was going to be okay in life. I was no matter what shit was going. At that point, nothing really bad had happened, but it's just like wow, what is this? And it just felt good, and that stayed me with me for really for forever after that. But, um, you know, five years old, I go to the dentist, get a dentist appointment. I don't know what a dentist is. I'm five years old. After I do my dentist thing, they say, well, that's great. You did all this thing and everybody's clapping and they give me a certificate and I hold up a certificate and I don't know what it is. I don't know, you know, deer in the headlight. They take a picture. It gets in the paper. I had no cavities. I didn't know what that meant, but I made the paper. Well, that night and my family at home Everybody at the table was talking about how great I was and how wonderful I was. And it's like this praise that I wanted. It's like, oh my God, if I'm, if I'm perfect with my teeth, then I, if I'm, per so I, I, you know, in my brain, the child wanted to get the attention, the affection, recognition he got. So all of a sudden it's like, 
I'm going to start doing this, everything perfectly, and I'm going to get that, that recognition, right? So then comes a trait of, you know, people pleasing and doing things for others, thinking I'm going to get an acknowledgement and love and condition that I'd gotten because of that. So it's all this conditional conditioning that happens that are Londyler's traits. Um, you know, so I grew up in a community that was French speaking, and I, I spoke French with my home and at home. And then I moved to an English part of Canada and I get there and, you know, I, I had a tough time. I mean, I, trying to understand the language, learning the stuff. Teacher wasn't a great teacher. My first grade teacher wasn't a great teacher. It was really a little bit rough. And then at one point I was leaving the school and I was just walking out towards to go home and some kid had spotted me and decided that he had something against me. And this guy just came out of nowhere and he basically tackled me and we both landed in these metal garbage cans and he's swinging at me and, you know, trying to pinch me and put, you know, it was just, and I, was, I had no idea what this was about, no idea. But of course the teacher comes out, grabs us, brings us to his principal's office and, you know, it was like, this was just bullying. And I, I think today I have to, you know, the, the kid was, maybe he had a, a rough day and he decided to pick on somebody. Maybe it was because I, I spoke French, but regardless, it was just, I got, I got something that I didn't deserve. And then the principal turns around and says, you know, you guys were both at fault and he gave me the strap. So he gave me the strap on my hands and it was like, it hurt a little bit, you know? And then I'm talking to somebody after school. I said, you know, am I going to get in trouble for this? And they said, well, your parents will know if they look at your hands, your parents will know that you got the strap. So, I mean, I wasn't like over, like I wasn't bleeding or wasn't like dying from it, but I came home that night as a six year old and I sat at the table and everybody's eating and I'm sitting there and I've got my fist like this and I didn't want to open them. And they said, well, what's wrong? I said, nothing, nothing. <laughs> you know, finally they got it out of me. It was like, basically, you know, I gotten the strap from the principal and I was, I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. You know, this was terrible. And my dad, I think in that moment, he saw this fear I had of maybe the punishment. And I'd been a brat and a little bit of a, you know, adventuresome and, and playful. And my dad didn't like that. I, I didn't listen you know, when he threatened and the other kids did. So something happened because after like a month, the next time I did something bad, my dad started beating me. And this was the start of, you know, six years of, you know, no kid deserves to be beaten. So uh, I couldn't process it then and going through steps has learned and taught me to, to hold the space for myself uh -huh. because part of me was really hurt by that. So, but you know, it's a parent trying to, you know, figure out how can I train this little kid who's, you know, rambunctious, you know, playful to sit still, right? Thinking that this is the way to do it. It was completely the wrong way. A part of me realized that my dad didn't know what the frig he was doing, right? And I think the, the grace of my, my siblings never had a physical punishment from my dad, but they got mentally and verbally abused their whole lives. And I got mentally and verbally and then physically abused, but somehow there's a shell that's sort of built around me to at least not necessarily possible to go on, but at least understand that what was going on was not fair, was not just, right? So, um, so I went through you know, some years of really, really terrible family home life. But, you know, you know, a year or two later when I'm in fourth grade, it's just this teacher that moved to a new school and I was failing every class. And they were saying, you know, do we put them in grade four? Do we hold them back in grade three? And I mean, I was that kind of student that just, uh, you know, I didn't know which way was up and which way was down. And this teacher just accepted me, 
held space for me, didn't judge me, gave me space to, you know, just brought me, held me accountable, understood when I was bad and just, you know, to be mindful and just help me process what was going on. And it really turned me around. And as a, as, as a kid that was, you know, 10 years old, I thought this woman loved me. I, I like as a kid, my persona thought, I want to marry her. <laughs> you know, it's just, but the, the notions as a kid, you can't understand what's going on. But to me, it's like, here's a, here's the loving parent I've always wanted is what I loved. And I thought as a kid, I personified somebody I want to marry, but it was that loving parent that I craved to have, that I got that space and let me grow and move forward. Um, so all of a sudden my school life started getting really good. I started, you know, people pleasing at school. So I got responsibility, doing AV chores, helping out, being, being able to answer. I got involved with the other kids. And that gave me this kind of dual life of, you know, having fun and helping people in school and then the chaos at the home, right? Um, so that went on for, you know, a few more years, but, you know, I started, you know, at 11 years old, I started getting involved in work and getting paid to do papers. And then by 13, I was running a, a, a depot for newspapers with other kids. And it's the stuff that adults were doing. I'm just being over-responsible, right? And all in this, what I was seeking, and I didn't realize it then, is I was seeking, you know, A, I was escaping from the feelings I had from home, but at the same time, I was trying to get validation. I wanted somebody to love me. I wanted somebody to recognize me. And I was getting recognition by doing all these things of being an overachiever as a you know, 12, 13, I mean, 15 years old, how many people were flying planes, you know, and you know, 16 year old bought a motorcycle. I mean, it's just stuff that I was doing. And you know, as an 18 year old, I was in charge of a platoon of 36 people in the military. It was just like, you know, leadership skills. And I, I grew up way too freaking fast, but it was just me craving to get the love and acceptance from somewhere. And where do I get that from, right? So I chased it in work. I changed it in, in vocations that I did and, and things that I did to help people. I chased it in my relationships, always looking for the same thing. I just want to be loved by my dad. I want to be loved and accepted. You know, that seven-year-old inside me or the five-year-old just wanted to be accepted. You know, my mother being an enabler, I didn't crave my mother's love because she, you know, she gave me everything she had and she had nothing for herself, but I crave that acceptance there, right? So um, that's, you know, some of the things that I'm processing now as part of, you know, growing up in a dysfunctional family and that, that duality between school, great life, busy. So, you know, by the time I was 12 years old and I'd gotten kind of like, you know, it, it gotten pretty bad between my dad and I, right? And I remember, I think I was 11 years old and my dad decided to give me a, a whopping. And I said, you know, dad, that didn't hurt enough. I said, let me help you. And I took my head and I started bashing my own head against the wall. It just had of like, how much can, can you give me really? You know, what's going on here? I was just at wit's end of trying to make this, this, this chaos stop, right? And it wasn't stopping. So I think the last time, I'm, you know, my dad was doing things, you know, getting mad at me for things that I, sometimes I had nothing to do with me or I wasn't the person responsible, but it's just an easy, like, it's his fault. So I think I was 12 years old, the last time he hit me and I just got up and I left stomping. And all I remember is like, I, I was so angry and I'm going into my room and it's one of those doors where you push the door open, it hit the bounce in the back and then bounced back towards me. And I just put my fist right into the door and put a, a, a mark of my fist right in that door. And my dad never touched me again. And that door didn't, didn't get changed. We moved out, that door still had my fist mark right in it. But it was just, that's when my 
13-year-old or 12-year-old defender showed up. So when there's injustice in my life, when I see people mistreating somebody else, or I see some, somebody on the news and, 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 or an animal, I mean, my defender wants to just go, you know, scream and yell at these people, right? And if it's directed towards me, if somebody, you know, drives by me too close and just about hits me, I, my defender comes out. It's not my reasonable adult saying, oh, you shouldn't be going so fast. It's like, you know, so, and those are triggered states. So, you know, parts of me are, you know, realizing today with recovery that, and we'll talk about how the recoveries helped me figure out that I'm a triggered adult. I'm living in this world of looking for love and acceptance. I'm living in this world of fear that something bad's going to happen because it happened to me as a seven-year-old. I'm looking for, I want to be safe and my defender showing up. And that doesn't make me a great person. doesn't make me a great father. doesn't make me a great friend, you know? And so it's just like, wow. So, so moving forward through, you know, um, you know, the physical punishment ended, uh, I basically created a life for myself, you know, my motorcycle, I could go and income as I pleased. I lived in a house with my family, but I really didn't do very much in the family unit. We just, I, I just, I had money. I could do what I wanted and, you know, try to live in what I thought was a quasi normal world, but the quasi normal world was a very dysfunctional, you know, trying to get acceptance and, and support from other people. Right. Um, so, um, and I think the last comment is there is that when I was 18, my parents split and my dad just filed for divorce and disappeared for two years. And so the whole facade of perfect family and everything else came crumbling down, you know, and I said, I'm an adult. I mean, he's an asshole and everything else. I didn't process the feelings. It was a huge loss for me. It was just, you know, the, the image of the father that I wanted and I thought, you know, wanted to love me turned out to be, he'd been, you know, having affairs his whole life. He wasn't faithful to my mom. He was just a monster, you know, and not only the, the abuse he'd given to me, but the, the image, it was just a sham, right? So that's another huge, huge loss that basically threw a monkey wrench as I was going into adulthood. It's like, what does this mean? It's like friggin' crazy. Ah. So, you know, starting in relationships, this is, I'm 18, 19, getting on my life, you know, and I go through and successful in work, you know, successful in like met somebody, dated her for five years, that didn't work out, met somebody else, you know, asked her to marry me, we're gonna get married. I mean, everything is going along, but you know what? It's a, I'm not emotionally checked in. I'm emotionally checked out because I'm living in these perpetual triggered states, right? Of reacting to others and trying to get affection and acceptance from other people, right? So, you know, by the time I was 39, I was married. I had a house, I had a pool, I had cars. I mean, I had kids, everything, you know, everything was great, you know, but emotionally I wasn't happy. Emotionally I was a void. Right, I was to my ego, my false self, could check off all the things. Duk, 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 duk. Right, you know, people come over and say, "Wow, you're a great couple, and you guys are just wonderful." And you, have a, you know, the, I had become, you know, the perfect family, but I married somebody that was exactly like my father emotionally. You know, I was never going to be good enough for her, uh, uh, and I, I, she was not available emotionally. And you know, that's I thought somehow when I met her, I this feels like a I'm back home. I, it feels home. It's like, I feel like I'm home with her. I didn't realize home is like, I repeated exactly the pattern that I had in my childhood. I took on my mom's codependency 
and tried to do everything to get this person to love me and accept me. And so I became, you know, do everything and, you know, codependent behavior towards her and then towards the children that we had. But in the end of the day, it was like, you know, she wasn't emotionally available and she wasn't going to give me the love that I needed because the love I needed was the love from a father, right? That you don't get from a wife, you know, the love from a father, which is, we talk about, we'll talk about is the reparenting. I needed to learn how to reparent myself and give myself the love that I thought I could get from, from outside. So years of marriage counseling and therapy and everything else, but, you know, they talk about, oh, you have to try to control less. But I'm not trying to control, I'm just trying to help people, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, they were talking about symptoms and the symptoms don't really talk to what the root cause is. So, you know, ACA, you know, and coming through, first of all, reading the laundry list and said, wow, that's pretty cool. Then I read the other laundry list and I said, oh, that's pretty shameful. And the other laundry list is like, what does it mean? I relate to a lot of this, but it sounds like a bad person. It sounds like my friggin' dad. <laughs> You know, and then all this shame comes in. It's like, whoa. So I came into ACA and I didn't want to say, well, I relate to the other laundry list too. And does anybody else? <laughs> it's like, because there's a little bit of shame in that. Because it's it's the person that my dad was as, you know, you know, became the very authority figures, right? Uh, we frighten people with our anger and threat of belittling. I mean, I could see, not all the time, but sometimes I'd be like that. It's like, oh my God, so what does this mean? So so let's talk about the, the ACA recovery for me. Uh, so there's a lot of things that, you know, um, I got through and helped me through recovery. So I'll, I'll go through just a, a list of them, right, and tell you sort of what my experience was with them. The ACA meetings, oh, my God. I mean, I said at the beginning, it was like, oh, it's, it's the, the group conscious is the loving parent that I can use to model holding space, accepting, not judging, and loving myself. I feel the love. I can give the love. It's just like, Wow. And it's the place I can look at myself and just try to be honest and vulnerable and open with who and what I'm, I'm feeling, right? So um, the first year I hopscotched, did a meeting here, did a meeting there. This meeting was talking about a step study and I did a meeting. I mean, I was all over the place, right? And it was great. But what it taught me on my whole life through everything I tried to do and try to understand who I was, I was trying to put pieces of the puzzle together. Okay, so what does control have to do with people pleasing it? And it's like, why, you know, how does this fit together? I couldn't see how it fit, but I knew there was connection sometimes. Well, when I came at the ACA, it was like somebody showed me the cover of the friggin' puzzle box. So I knew what the picture looks like. So I don't, doesn't mean the puzzle is solved, but I know now when I'm working on the sky and th these things go together and this is why they go together. And this is why these things go together. So this is why, you know, afraid of authority figures. So it helps me understand when I want to work on parts of me that are triggered, you know, oh, what does perfectionism have to do with something? And, and so I can go and look and work those areas. So it's really kind of the big picture. So that's ACA sort of gave me that first in coming to the first meeting. These meetings are my emotional gym. I, I walk five miles. I try to walk five miles a day to stay physically fit. I try to go to a couple of meetings a week and do journaling and work on my stuff to stay mentally and emotionally fit. So um, talk about fellow traveler. You know, early in recovery, I remember some of the first times I was sharing. I had people come up to me after and it's like, I want to invite you and your daughters over for supper. And like, I didn't know this person from Boo. And it's like, they're like, because they related to my share. It's like, it, is that crossed? This felt weird, right? But people wanted to help me. It's like overtly wanted to help me. And then sometimes people would share and I'd go up to them after a meeting and I want to help them. It's like, so 
I have to recognize that it's normal coming into programs that some of us, certainly me with my codependence traits, would want to help people. But, you know, it's helping people because I relate to their trauma. You know, it can be trauma bonding. So it's just it's holding space is not the same as trauma bonding and say, oh my God, I relate so much. Let me tell you about my experience. So learning in the early stages of recovery that, you know, these connections I felt with people, some of them were not always healthy, but it took time to figure that out. Um, so that's on the fellow traveler side. Um, but then at the end, I mean, I ended up with people that I've got a network of people that call me and I call them. I've got people that call me. I've never met them. I don't know how they got my number. I get a phone call and it's like, we go through some processing that is like rocking and rolling, right? It's incredible. It's really, really nice to be able to just have non-judgmental people to go through and process stuff as it comes up for me or in their case for them. So, and I learn as much when they call me and share as when I share with them. Um, my next thing is journaling. Even from the beginning, I started, you know, feelings. I open my iPad and I go in and it's called my ACA feelings. And like, I'm process, you know, processing stuff. And just, it doesn't matter that it's, writing it down helps me remember, right? And the next day or two days later, I can go back, read it, and then do a share in a meeting, right? About something that was really important. Because if I don't write it and journal it, sometimes it's like, what was it that was really moving and I was trying to process? So there's journaling for me is just a therapy for me. It's just going through and writing. Um, and then I started sub-journaling and saying, okay, I'm gonna create one for like my codependent behavior. And so I, you know, when I'm doing stuff to do with, and I've gotten another one that's relationship stuff because figuring out, I know how to reparent myself, how to love myself. So how does that work into relationships? So it's just, you know, it's my way of compartmentalizing, just figuring things out. So, but journaling has really, really been helpful. And then one of the sidebars of that is I traveled before COVID. I used to travel for work, you know, two, three days a week, one week, sometimes four days the other week, and then home for a week or two. And when you travel, you can't do meetings. And I, I wanted to, sometimes I wanted to just share what I was going through. And then I went online and I found an ACOA Facebook group. And there were like 12,000 people in this room, uh, this Facebook group, and they would just journal and share and under kind of the rules of ACA. So no crosstalk. And if you want to share, you know, how you're feeling and ask for somebody else's experience, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So it gave me what I call instant meetings. If I want to process something I'm going through that was really major two years ago, I would go there. I would journal, post it, and then, you know, within half an hour, you have four or five people sharing their experience of how they process it and what they related to, right? And it was just like helping each other. So I, I found it really, really helpful in terms of some of my growth, certainly two, three years ago, uh, you know, going through that. Now I'm I'm not spending a lot of time there, but I do spend some time doing service and, and but it's, it's, it's another tool for me. The STEPS workbook. The STEPS workbook is, uh, is my, oh my God, right? <laughs> this, uh, this is amazing. Uh, and, you know, after hopscotching for, you know, a year, I started this book, right? And it's, I, I call it the book where I got traction, right? Because going around here and there, I needed structure and this gave me begin here, do this, do this, do this. And it's just incredible what happened as part of that. So the first thing was got rid of the guilt and the shame. You know, when I did step one, I realized, oh my God, my family of origin was just crazy. And their family of origin was crazy. So it couldn't have turned out any other way. So it's not my fault. 
you know, I don't have to be ashamed of this, right? And so that was a huge part of uh, doing the steps. And then the fourth step was, to, you know, writing and then learning to process the loss. That was the first time I did my fifth step is when I really processed the beatings and the hurt that for my whole life, I thought, yeah, he was an asshole. I got through it, but it was hurtful and I needed to. So the steps fourth and fifth specifically helped me process the things that trigger me that are the losses and or the hurts that I have so that they don't affect me as much going forward. So I learned to do a few the first time I went through and each time I go through, I do more, right? But it, I can go back and do a fourth and fifth step to just process again, things that I'm going through. Um, and then some of the things about just steps in terms of experience, strength and hope is that my first step group hit after a year, started in September and, and August, no, started in August and August the following year, we're still the fourth step. And we hit what we, they call the four step wall. <laughs> and I went in this program with people who had gone through other 12-step programs before. I thought they knew what they were doing. And it's just so, not everybody knows how to, what they're doing and it doesn't always work, but don't give up. So I started two, not one, but two Facebook groups, Zoom meetings in, in September, two, I guess a year and, and a half ago. And I took two groups together and we groups of four or five people and we went through the steps. And at first I started two groups. I said, I'm gonna start one and just get the other one launched and I'll just go away. I ended up doing, in the same week, I do the step, this reading, and then with the other group, it's the same reading, and I, I get completely different perspectives. And I'll tell you the growth that I got from both of those, because three or four people, five people in a meeting, sharing and being vulnerable and continuing the process, I don't know what it is, but it just, it, it, it was safe. I was accountable myself. I grew and I learned. And the people that I walked through the program had never gone through the ACS steps before. And we all, all of us are all like, oh my God, this was phenomenal. So I'm continuing to work with some of those groups today um, on other stuff, right? Um, so I did the reparenting. I just finished December. I just finished the reparenting workbook. This is a new book that's coming out from ACA. And that was really, really cool because it gave me sort of the compartments of what should I have gotten when I was you know, the first 18 months of my life, what should I have gotten until I was five years old? And it helps me understand developmentally what I'd missed. And so as I reparent myself, I understand what I need to give myself, right? It's one thing to say, I just need to love my inner child, but what did my inner child not get that I can work through? So it gives me kind of a roadmap of, of deeper reparenting and self-love in processing and holding space for my, my inner children, right? Um, I'm working right now on the laundry list workbook. Uh, I, I've used this book. I, I'm going through it for the first time, but I've used this book every time I hit like a four step. What's going on with four steps? So I'll go through and I'll read it. What's going on with six steps? So I use it as a reference, but now I'm going to go through it, you know, as beginning to end. Uh, the retreats, I did uh, the Minas Mountain Retreat. Oh my God, If I, I, I couldn't do it this past year because of COVID, but I, I'm going back. I'm going back. I was just... It's just nurturing, nurturing for my soul and, and really, really important to be in a community of 120, 170 people for a weekend and just, you know, practicing meditation, practicing hearing uh, amazing speakers, just wonderful stuff. Um, workshops, I've done a bunch of in-person workshop, non-data handwriting, art workshops. I mean, every one of them is just amazing. But I have to say, Robert N's, you know, call to parenting workshop, oh my God. 
It's like he left cookie crumbs for me that I got, I can follow along or decide I want to take a different path. But that was just tremendous for me to see somebody with 30 years or 25 years of recovery who's documented. And it's kind of ironic because Rob works in computer science. I work in computer science. He's in sales. I was like, oh my God, he's a mini me <laughs> or I'm a mini him. So it's kind of cool. Uh, anyways, if he's around, Rob, Robert, love you if you're around, but uh, you know, a lot of growth from that workshop. Literature, big red book. Uh, I don't read cover to cover on, on that book, but uh, I do read sections and then the daily meditations is like, oh my God, higher power sends me the reading I need for that day and how I need to process stuff, which is amazing. Um, meditation, I, I've been meditating and you know, dabbling in meditation. The, the, the retreats are really wonderful for that some of the online stuff. Uh, and this year I started yoga. So three days ago, I was on my yoga mat laughing at myself because I can't bend. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, so humbling and so beautiful that, you know, I'm trying something that I want to be able to flex and move and I'm physically fit, but I don't have them. But it's just, and my inner child's are just going crazy and having fun with it. I did after about 20 minutes of yoga, I went to the dance session and learned some dance step. And my kids are like, oh, this is party time. Forget what they're doing. I'm doing my stuff. So I'm having fun with it. So that's really good, the meditation and yoga. And then what's interesting thing is there's a lot of parallel programs I'm seeing out there. I'm talking to people that are doing non-ACA recovery-related stuff, but they're talking about the same thing. You know, Buddhist philosophy and then people doing the uh, IFS, and, but it's all people are trying to heal from trauma and they're trying to go through reparenting it and, and you know, get rid of. So it's nice to see that there's a whole bunch of different movements, but for me, ACA is my roadmap, easy to follow. Um, uh, relationships, you know, this is an interesting one because I think I looked my whole life for love outside of myself. And uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's within that it exists, but then when you find it with, in and uh, then you have to bring it into what does it mean in a relationship? And <laughs> so that's learning how to not be codependent in a relationship, learning to show up, learning to laugh and, and be the, the, the true self is really interesting. But I think just as a side note, so I started September 2017, I started recovery. In um, May, it was actually May of 2019. So close to just about two years later, I found myself asking myself, who am I? And, you know, what do I want? And not knowing who I was. And this was the first moment of really trying to learn to love myself. And scary as all get out. It's like, it is literally for me, it was, there's nothing. I have no idea who I am. I know what I want other people to think I am. I know what other people need that I can be for them, but who the heck am I? But it didn't take long to start to connect to the playfulness, the, the joys I have inside, and then bring that into connecting to who and what I'm about. And as scary as, as it was, and it took six, eight months, nine months of really hard work is coming back to be able to say, hey, I love myself and, and this is who I am and I'm not perfect and I'm humble, and, uh, but I can show up and be a much better version of myself. Um, so a couple other things in the speaker meetings, this thing is incredible hearing people's story from end to end. I, I, it's just so much deeper than just doing a five minute share of meeting or a four minute share of meeting or a three minute share. So, uh, you know, Adam, Julie, you know, everybody who's behind these things is just tremendous. And so I really, really, that's a lot of my growth comes from that. Um, 
just a couple more things on, on that then is, um, so talking about the other laundry list and talking about the laundry list, okay? Um, this is probably, you know, is the drama triangle. And it's probably one of my favorites now because it talks about, you know, the rescuer, it talks about the victim and it talks about the perpetrator. And it's a triangle and I move around in that triangle. If I'm not in recovery, I'm gonna move around. And I'm gonna to say to my sister, you know, I'm just trying to help mom. You know, I, you're, you're getting mad at me because I'm trying to help mom, so I'm the victim. And then I'll say, you don't appreciate anything I do for you. And da 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 da. And then I'm the per perpetrator, right? And then, and then I'm in the rescue. It's like, okay, well, I need to fix it. It's like, that's the drama. I, now AC has taught me to see that if I'm in the laundry list or the other laundry list, I'm in the friggin' drama triangle and I can step out of the trauma triangle. I don't need to, I was in it my whole friggin' life. So the anomaly, the, the, the analogy I love is that the trauma triangle is the path I've been taking my whole life. I've been walking through, and this is a well-beaten path that goes through all the different parts. And when I decide to do recovery, instead of taking the path, I'm walking through tall grass in the middle and there's mud and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, struggling to get through it, but that's recovery. I've never taken healthy approaches to life and going through tall grass and fighting my way through and figuring my way out is hard. And I can always go back to the dysfunctional way, which is easy, but I know that I'll eventually get a better way to get through life by, by creating a new healthier path through the tall grass. It'll eventually become worn and beaten. So probably never as beaten as my <laughs> dysfunctional path, but still it'll be a heck of a lot better and, and moving forward. Um, and so, you know, you know, loving parent that this is, you know, I sort of touched on it is this being able to learn to love myself. And I think just one of the biggest things for me was, I remember uh, for those who've been around long enough, Kermit the Frog did a song, It's Not Easy Being Green. Uh, and he talks about how, you know, bland and green is and how, you know, people pass it by and it's not big like a mountain or important like an ocean and stuff. And, you know, I use that song to sort of realize that I'm okay being ACA, you know? It's beautiful being ACA. Doesn't mean I'm big like a mountain or, you know, wide like an ocean, but it's a level of acceptance. And I remember going through this level of acceptance and say, I, I, for a long time, I was just mad at being dysfunctional and mad at, but then getting that level of acceptance say, it's okay. It's okay, I'm okay being ACA. I, in fact, I love being ACA now because I can grow and I can be real. I, and I, I don't think, I mean, a lot of see, I see a lot of people that are go through life that don't feel half the stuff I'm feeling and better now than never. And so I'm totally, totally grateful for, you know, even the dysfunction is saying, hey, it's brought me here. So for that, I, I'm really thankful. Uh, and then I think I'll just close in saying that, that, that you know, the serenity prayer. It's my go-to. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, we say to every meeting, but, you know, it's the reminder that, you know, I can't change the chaos around me. It's always going to be there. It's going on now. It's going to be going on tomorrow. Went on yesterday. It happened in my family of origin. It happens with, with me and, and learning that I've got to accept the people and the things I cannot change really is so, so divine when I get caught up with being anxious because my workload is way too much, but it's not all mine. 
or, you know, so, and then the courage to change them when I can and the wisdom to know that one is me. Is this like that, you know, the power in those phrases to just ground me and bring, bring me back to, you know, it's okay, you know, and I don't own that stuff. It's just incredible. So, uh, but the whole program as, uh, overall has just been amazing. So, so happy to, uh, to share my story and, uh, you know, whatever people get from it, but certainly you listening to it is gives me a ton, ton of growth and lots of love. So I want to thank you.